If you've read our September-October issue, or gone to any of the New York Film Festival, you ought to know by now, movies aren't dead, and you should probably question anyone who says they are. As part of the 54th New York Film Festival's Free Talk series, sponsored by HBO, our critics, Fariha Zaman, Nick Pinkerton, Imogen Sarah Smith, and Shani Anilo, convened to discuss issues raised in their work. Film comment editor Nicholas Rapold and Film Society editorial director Michael Koreski moderated. Rapold joins the conversation a little late. Here's the audio from the evening. One of the ideas of this issue was to really look at, we called it living cinema, you know, what makes cinema exciting right now. There's a lot of talk of the death of cinema. You hear these ridiculous arguments, and then you come to a festival like this, and then you ask what the hell are people talking about, because you see these amazing films. Um, so for this issue, we really wanted to look at that and, and all the different ways you can look at that, whether that's through new films or through ideas that span across films. So we turned to some of our greatest writers to help us answer these questions. But um, I would like them to introduce themselves in just um, a little, like the shortest possible bio. My name's Fariha. I have been a critic for seven or eight years, and I'm also a documentary filmmaker and uh, work for a commissioning body called Field of Vision. I'm Shani Anilo. I'm a writer and I'm an assistant professor of English at Fordham University. And I recently published a book called Method Acting and Its Discontents on American Psychodrama. I'm Imogen Sarah Smith. I'm a freelance film writer and author of two books. One is about film noir, the other is about silent comedy. And I'm also an archivist. Nick Pinkerton. I'm a gigging film writer in this film comment and others, art forum and various other places, and author of no books whatsoever. It's only a matter of time. No, and finding matter of time. principle. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd like to, actually, I'd love to start with Fariha, because I think a good way into this conversation would be to talk about a very exciting new film. So for this issue, you wrote a feature on Moonlight, which was mentioned earlier, and there's going to be a panel ab about making Moonlight tomorrow. And it's, it really feels like something different. It feels like something we haven't seen before in American cinema. So before we kind of dig into the other articles and features and the ideas behind them, I'd love to just get into this with what is Moonlight and what does it mean to you? Sure. It's, it's difficult. You know, sometimes it's really difficult to write a piece about uh, a film that you strongly disliked and think that doesn't have a lot of value to sort of wrap your head around. And I had a really difficult time talking about this film because I liked it so much. It was the opposite, where I, I loved it. It was, this is the first article I've written for Film Comment, actually, and I had this moment of like, I can't write this like gushing fangirl review for my first article for them. So it's about, you know, like how do I express what's good about this film? And I thought that uh, something that was important here and for me writing about it was to that it was okay to break into uh, the use of I at times I think once or twice or I, I use the sense of we because okay it's a it's a great time to talk about films that are dealing with black lives in America obviously and I do think that this is an amazing year for New York Film Festival because they're trying to address that more explicitly you know obviously Ava DuVernay's documentary is the first documentary that ever opened this film festival and Moonlight 
is a film that addresses the same things in a totally different way and in a way that I believe in really strongly, which is that sometimes to make a really powerful political statement, you don't talk about politics at all. You simply humanize people that are continuously dehumanized. And it struck me over and over and over when I was watching the film. And part of the, that power for me was being, I'm not a black person, but I'm a woman of color. And that idea that like, for some of us, there is that feeling of we, we don't get to be seen in this way. We don't get to see you know, stories that are romantic and beautiful and drenched in light and uh, you know, make this epic thing about our childhoods. We see stories of, or we get to have stories of, here's what it's like when, when life is tough for you. And like, here's the prescribed ways in which you address stories that are about people of color or people who are queer or people who come from disadvantaged backgrounds. So that was what I really kind of wanted to balance was talking about the artistry of the film, which is there and the reason why it teaches or why it uh, actually is politically effective, <laughs> even if that wasn't its intention or its explicit tone in any way, uh, but then also addressing that it's very meaningful at this moment. I find it, it, one thing that's interesting, you talked about the I, the, the we, and the when you write. This is a question that came up a lot uh, in, when we were doing the Critics Academy. You know, when is it appropriate to use the I in film criticism? How do you make personal, uh, you know, deeply felt criticism that doesn't necessarily have to use it? I mean, how, when, so when you're writing this piece, which is a very emotional piece, um, how, did you, how did you balance that? It's tricky. Um, so being a documentary filmmaker, one of the things that I try to do is make a, a film that uses no ca uh, explanatory cards whatsoever. And when I felt like I've gone to the absolute limit that I possibly can in terms of what the material expresses on its own, then I'll consider what cards have to be used. And that's how I've tried to um, incorporate using I when necessary. Like I, I do the exercise of not saying it at all because it can be very easy to lean on it. It's, I, I'm not one of those people who's a purist who thinks it's totally inappropriate or that criticism has to pretend to be objective necessarily, but I try to go without and then if there's moments where I either think it would make the piece more powerful or just be more honest. Like I am saying something that, I, that is coming from a specific point of view or a specific experience that I've had, then, I, then I'll work it in there and see how the editor feels about it, which in this case was good. It was, and actually as I'm talking about it, I do sometimes use I, but I think this was the first time I, I said we, and it was a very different uh, use and feeling actually. I, th I felt that it better reflected the sense of empowerment that the film gave me as a person of color. Um, I just was watching part of Moonlight again. I, I've seen it, of course, it's great. But in order to um, make it to this panel, I had to leave the screening before it was over, which was very painful. I hate leaving movies, especially great ones. But as I was watching it, um, sometimes because I had seen it before, I took the opportunity to look around the room, and I saw a lot of grown men wiping their eyes, which I thought was a, a very powerful uh, message. Um, just seeing that. So it's really, it's a movie that people are going to be talking about. And, and I just wanted to jump over um, to Nick for a second, just because this question, we were just talking about the eye and bringing it in, and it kind of ties a little bit into your piece. So you wrote for, the, for this issue uh, a long piece about film criticism in the age of social media and um, how the landscape of social media, Twitter, Facebook, the way we communicate, has changed film writing itself in a way. Where, um, and one, one of the ways I see it is that it, a lot of writing is strictly about the eye, and it becomes about this sort of 
identity politics and, and your own brand. And so I'm just, if you could talk about your article a little bit and then. Well, I mean, to speak to that point, it's always to a certain extent about the I, even if you aren't wedging personal pronouns in. I mean, there's always a byline attached to everything, and there are reasons to eschew that uh, and reasons that it can be effective. But, I mean, you're, you're certainly right that uh, it is perhaps more prevalent to a certain extent. I mean, if there's any sort of organized through line to it, it's a... I hope not entirely despairing since that any kind of cogent narrative about what film culture per se is has been lost in a ongoing and ever rising babble, uh, a rising tide of content, content, and always more content above which it becomes increasingly difficult for any single voice to be heard. But in addition to that, I think it sort of breaks down as the examination of a lot of certain tendencies and criticism. The manner in which different mastheads have approached getting more use value out of a single movie. So, you know, to take the example of Moonlight, uh, you'll certainly see reviews of it run, but I guarantee you, you'll get you know, backlash pieces, which will come in due time. You'll get, you know, every possible sort of point of approach that can be taken all run under the same masthead. And what this does, you know, essentially is erodes any kind of you know, cogent editorial viewpoint when everybody is both for and against every movie because they're trying to juice it for as much content as can possibly be got out of it. So this is one of the certain tendencies. I talk a little bit about the infiltration of kind of fanboyish culture into the film cultural dialogue and a lot of things that I've been rattling on about in various forums for years now, but I sort of packed them all in in one place. Synthesized into one piece. Yeah. But it's interesting that you bring that up because I, I was thinking today watching Tony Erdman um, for the second time and Moonlight for the just about the second time that there is this expectation, you were just saying, an expectation of that there's going to be a backlash to yeah. everything because there's so many voices out there and everybody is kind of shouting over everyone else to mm -hmm. get heard. And of course, the way that they're phrased in this kind of provocative way, like the headline's going to be what Moonlight gets wrong about growing sure. up in Miami in sure. 1996. Like, and you know. if you're, you know, if you're one of the hundreds of people who are going to hang a byline onto something written about Moonlight and you, you know, put your finger up in the air, you can see which way the wind is blowing, you know at this point, uh, you know, adding another rave to the pile isn't going to move the needle very much. It's not going to, you know, do sick metrics. What you can do, however, is be the, the outside voice, which is, I mean, not to say that people who play the agent provocateur role or whatever are necessarily being disingenuous, but I think there is a, a certain amount of positioning that goes on to an unusual uh, degree in the contemporary discourse, in part because you can see consensuses forming in real time now. I mean, if you are on Twitter, you can see people on the ground in Toronto or at New York Film Festival. You can follow critics of note and get a pretty good idea of what developing consensus is and 
you then get a lot of work that is responding not to the primary text, the film itself, but to a perception of what the consensus is that is responding to responses rather than, and, and that can be interesting. <laughs> I mean, I'm not discounting that out of course, but again, just several different certain tendencies that I've seen develop over my decade or so farting around in this industry. I mean, one thing that strikes me as really interesting and that actually connects both of your pieces and, and film comment is that what seems to be missing from this conversation, from this backlash, from this you know, positioning, as you put it, is a real serious consideration of the aesthetic. And I was really struck by the way you talk about the use of uh, a non-realist aesthetic in Moonlight and um, also the way, Nick, you in your description of the voices that are shouting, it always seems to be about a certain kind of, um, it, it seems to take for granted a certain relationship between the film text and the real that a film like Moonlight would seem to push back against. So it just, it just strikes me as interesting that what's, what, you know, the, the, the aesthetic is sort of the missing term there that people actually aren't arguing about, maybe not enough. Well, I think what's partially responsible for this is that there is, no lack of film writing out there today. In fact, you know, every print masthead that survived the turnover into digital has you know, vast, vast you know, acres and acres of digital column space that they now have to fill, which is why we get this hyperstatizing of you know, content. And everybody, certainly everybody who's doing this for a living and who depends upon placing writing in order to pay their bills, has to write, and I mean, I don't have any figures on this, but it certainly makes sense to me, has to write more than they ever have before. And probably have to write considerably faster. And the sort of writing that you're talking about that considers the aesthetic, that looks at Moonlight and says, how exactly does it do what it's doing? Like, how is this actually put together? I want to get under the hood of it and see what the connection between the sort of architectonics of it as a work and how it's making me feel and how it's doing that in an honest way. That's really hard and time consuming. That takes a lot of time to do, to like sit down and get under the hood and get, you know, do that nuts and bolts work. What takes very little time to do is figure out what people are saying and respond to what people are saying. So you get a lot of that work because everybody's stressed out <laughs> and trying to you know, make deadline and uh, you know, keep the wolves from the door. So you get a lot of very or hasty hot mm. takes. And, de and desperation to be first. And you see, and you sure. see that a lot in uh, festival coverage, mm. especially not necessarily this one because a lot of the films here, like, like Cannes, for instance, it's the first time anyone's seeing any of those movies. So then there's this mad dash to Twitter the second the movie ends, and you get all these so-called hot takes, which, of course, you know, they, like you're saying, they miss the actual thing of it. I mean, it's kind of like everybody wants to be a trade now. There used to, there, there used to be, like, the Variety Review, but the Variety Review, you know, didn't go up five minutes after the movie showed. It went up, I mean, like, later that week. And, you know, writers have always written under the gun, you know, this is nothing necessarily new, but I think the, like, sheer volumes of material that people, people are reeling out, especially, again, if you're actually depending on this for your livelihood, it does not privilege the very kind of writing that, you know, you're talking about, where you're, and also people are generally bored stiff by any discussion of aesthetics. <laughs> 
Um, introducing Film Common Editor Nicholas Rapol. <laughs> you made it. Sorry. I was just doing a Q&A for a very special film about jazz. I called him Morgan, so apologies. What did I miss? <laughs> Summarize. Um, I'll, uh, Aesthetics and politics. Aesthetics and politics? Okay, great. So that leaves. We're, well, we're just going over next. I just wanted to segue quickly to Imogen's, and then we can um, get back. Because one of the positive byproducts, I think, of this culture is that people are really paying attention to older films and talking about, and ha they have space in some places to write about and think about older films. And Imogen, your piece is about the experience of watching older films and kind of being, um, um, being movie besotted in a way, but also not giving into the, the idea that it's nostalgia, which I think you write about very eloquently. If you could talk about your piece. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I suppose the, the first thing to say is just that I really feel there's no reason there should be any kind of distinction drawn between watching old movies and watching new releases. That's somehow something that, I mean, even just you're, you're asking me to write the piece, seems to suggest that, you know, watching old movies is this kind of decision that certain people make, mm -hmm. and, and we're, our, our, we're our own kind of community within the community of cinephiles. I am very much kind of in that community of people who watch old movies, but I think with any art form, surely you have to be interested in where it's been and where it is now, and one informs the other. And I think with cinema, because of, of it being a popular art form, because of it having this element of technology also, of it being an ever-evolving technology, there's a kind of a different perception that somehow old movies do become obsolete. But in fact, you know, we are really in a better place now in terms of the appreciation of old movies than we were for much of the history of cinema. I mean, the very notion of watching old movies and having, a ven having venues both to see them and to discuss them and to write about them didn't even really exist for the first you know, half century of cinema. And that suddenly, it was like people who were, in, you know, in the 50s, all of a sudden, people developed this interest in earlier cinema. So I do think there's a lot of kind of hand-wringing about the, the small sort of market share that old movies get and the idea that they're not seen as very culturally relevant. But in fact, you know, we're living in a really good time for film restoration and preservation for that being actually appreciated, the need to save older films, and for having, you know, great venues to watch them. And more, as you say, more venues to discuss them because of this kind of proliferation. But you know, I, I, I just always think if you haven't seen a movie before, it's new to you. It's not, you know, it's not like because it existed previously, it's somehow you're not going to discover something new in it. There's still a lot that's new to discover. And the notion that we have of the canon of film history, there's a lot of room for it to grow. There's a lot of things, you know, classic cinemas of other cultures that are really, have never been known very much in America, Argentina or, you know, other countries that just the, the films never showed here in the first place. They're not really known, but they have their own film history as well as their own current film culture. So I don't know if you had a specific question well, for I mean, me that's about, <laughs> about the piece. I mean, I, I, want, I, I wanted to talk about 
you know, as you asked me specifically to talk about the kind of different ways in which people watch old movies now, because there's both repertory cinemas and that whole sort of world, and there's, you know, the certain festivals that are specifically focused on older films, Bologna and Pordenone and the San Francisco Silent Film Festival, which is the one I kind of focused on in my piece, partly just because I happened to have just come back from it when you first pitched that idea to me, and it's a really, it's, that's like even a smaller subculture within the subculture of people who watch old movies is people who care about silent movies, and it's kind of a, a, a very immersive experience of seeing those films. But then, of course, we all watch them at home. You can, you know, there's online, there's DVDs, and there's the ability now to curate your own film watching in a way that obviously earlier generations didn't have and the ability to, to educate yourself. It's certainly far from the dream of every you know, movie ever made being available to you at any time, but it's, we're closer to that, I think, than we've ever been before. But there's also perhaps a sense that, that I don't know, you can, you can feel kind of isolated if you don't, you know, I think in New York you're not as likely to feel that way because there is a whole repertory cinema culture, but for someone who lives in a place that doesn't have repertory cinemas and just is watching Turner Classic movies or something, you know, I guess they have an online culture, but there's a certain maybe sense of it being kind of an isolated subculture. I, I just had one follow-up question to this, to this topic. I'm just curious, kind of combining the two topics of you know, social media and classical uh, film culture. I, I, could you identify any filmmakers or, or actors or, uh, that somehow have, you know, gained new recognition in, say, the latest, say, last 10 years, that latest wave of people revisiting films like this? Seems like it's always happening. De right, yeah, I definitely. No, I, I'm just, I, I mean... I know, I, yeah, no, it's a good question. You know, question. when things happen when, say, you know, Criterion puts out something that hasn't ever been available before and people suddenly discover, you know, Jacques Becker or, or Jean Grémillon or some filmmaker that, whose films never really were known before. I mean, I, I just came before this from the, the Bertrand Tavernier documentary and afterwards, you know, and he was saying, like, nobody's ever heard of these Jacques Becker films. And we were like, yes, yes, we have, <laughs> you know. But that's only been fairly recent, you know, that some of those, you know, like Antoine and Antoinette have reappeared. And so there are definitely are those great moments of rediscovery. There's also, I don't know, for me, like the, the Mexican film noir and the Argentine film noir series that MoMA has done have been really revelatory to a lot of people, I think. But I mean, I'm sure there's, there's any number of, of examples. Uh, and I guess one article we haven't, as a tipster has told me, the one article that we, we haven't really discussed uh, is Shawnee's on, on the new, new style of acting that you've identified. Uh, if you could talk a bit about, I mean, maybe when you first had an inkling of when there was something brewing in this regard. Actually, I am first trained as a theater and performance scholar, and uh, I have observed for many years, as a number of people have, in the kind of downtown experimental theater world that I spend a lot of time in, um, that there is this new style of acting that, that sort of rose to prominence in the early to mid-aughts that some people call neutral. And it's not, it's very different from what that might mean to a, a cinematic audience. Um, it's, it's, not, it's not really like mumblecore or anything that you might think of like that. Um, it's really a, a sort of, I think, an effort to strip away some of the conventions of realist acting that for a long time 
time have been sedimented as the model of good acting. Um, and that comes to us from you know, the, the tradition of like what's often called method acting in America or Stanislavski-based acting um, in America, which has had, some might say, a, a stranglehold on theater and uh, performance training in this country and in a lot of other countries too, actually. Um, when I was thinking about uh, what I might, you know, what I, what I might talk about in, in film acting, um, this was already this was already on my mind, and then I, I actually wanted to go the complete opposite direction of a lot of my theater writing and look at the most mainstream movies of, of the last number of years. I just thought it would be a really interesting exercise, you know, to think about what. Uh, of course, there's a lot of talk of, of, about the fact that we have no, you know, mass culture anymore, and they're just these microcultures. But we do have a mass culture, right? Like The Hunger Games was a mass cultural production, and a lot of people saw it, and so was Twilight, and you know. And so I guess I wanted to think about what, you know, what were the what were the aesthetics of of acting that were that were going on in those, um, you know, major productions that seem to, you know, mark something for for a lot of people generationally. Like it's, they seem to mean something to people in a generational sense. And you know what I immediately observed was that this that acting in those films is is very small um, especially the, the stars of, of these franchises Kristen Stewart and, and Jennifer Lawrence well, you know what they what they're doing is really um, you know quite different from stars in, in sort of like similarly major films of previous eras and you know so I just started trying to pull that apart and read it inside these films individually and then try to figure out if I could say something broader about why it might be that that people are are reacting to a certain model of, a, or why it might be that people are performing in this style. And what I came upon was that it seemed like people were reacting to a certain model of realism that had become calcified on the one hand, but also, um, you know, registering all these new different ways of thinking about psychology. And, and very specifically, you know, what I came to is that it was registering a different way of thinking about trauma, a very different way of thinking about trauma from the one that method acting encoded. And that, you know, I think that, that that's something about which a fair amount of ink has been spilled, you know, that today we actually, um, you know, we think about trauma very differently from, you know, an original or quote unquote Freudian concept. And, and, I, and I saw that registered in these performances. Can you, can you make, talk about the four actors that you focus on? Yeah, yeah. so, so I started with Jennifer Lawrence, um, and I talked about her performance in Winter's Bone and its relationship to her performance in Hunger Games. And then I talked about Rooney Mara, uh, who's another very withdrawn performer, and uh, who I, I talked about her two major films, um, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and Carol, um, both of which actually are a lot about her as a, both the subject and object of surveillance. So in both of those films, I, you know, I sort of see the performance as registering this uneasiness with surveillance and an uneasiness with the relationship between surveillance and the gaze of the camera. And then I talked about uh, Oscar Isaac, uh, who is sort of an outlier on the list in some ways. He's a, quite a bit older and also is classically trained, as they put it, right over there at Juilliard. Um, uh, you know, so I thought it was really interesting that actually his performances, although they're different in some ways, seem to, seem to work through some of the same aesthetics and same themes that I saw in the others. And lastly, I talked about Michael B. Jordan, whose films, uh, whose two major films for Bill Station and, and Creed, you know, are both about uh, sort of, you know, micro, micro affects and gestures rather than uh, big emotional displays, even though both of those films seem to uh, put him in situations where it seemed to demand big emotional displays from him. Um, but I think, uh, you know, in, in, in spite of that, there are all these ways that he resists making those, you know, those full revelations. I, it strikes me that maybe Moonlight could almost, the performances in Moonlight almost fall into this a little. 
Well, and I was going to say actually that one of the, the fascinating things about your article to me is um, how it uh, hints at this sort of bigger picture of what are invisible signifiers of authenticity to a wider audience and how that's shifted so considerably. And so before this idea of like, I can emote, shows that you're willing to trust an audience member enough to um, sh reveal something true to them. And now if you do that, and I think it relates to Nick's article too, because the like, our understanding of what's real has changed because of social media and this idea that like, well, if you're performative, that's just the norm now. So if you are reserved, actually, you're being more authentic. And I think that applies beyond acting to a lot of aesthetic and technical choices as well. The idea that if you do something stylized, you're doing something less real. And you made you know, sort of a joke about like mumblecore, but the, I think there's been a conflation of naturalism with authenticity. And that is something I spoke about in Moonlight because the performances are often quite reserved and natural and held in but the style is not at all. So there's this tension between what's reserved and, and expressing emotion through a different channel besides through the actors. Yeah, I mean, I, I see it as related also if you look at looking at older films. One of the things that I think does actually create a barrier for some people is that the styles of acting have changed so much and, and we do perceive what is familiar to us as the style of performing now as being natural and being normal. And definitely you go back, you know, to the to the method actors, you go further back to, you know, a style that's much more formal and stylized and then back to sort of pantomime without sound. And people can't it's like I think a lot of people do have trouble connecting with it. And so I was I loved the way you talked about how actors are watching, you know, they're they're enacting what is now perceived as sort of ordinary behavior and at the same time people are watching movies and learning from the movies how to behave so it's this kind of like cycle you know it's this this two-way thing um but it's one of the things that i find fascinating about watching older films but that that is definitely something that's kind of more so than the way that film you know styles of filmmaking may have changed i think that's probably less startling to people than the way styles of performing have changed so much and there's but there's so much that you can glean from it about what how people felt at the time about the act of performing and just how they felt about the way you know men and women are supposed to behave and the way they felt about psychology and everything i mean you can trace it all through looking at styles of performance and finally i mean I'm really interested in how acting for the camera developed as something separate from acting on stage mm -hmm. and the people who developed you know, a style that's extremely inward because you can only really do, I mean, you know, you know more about what's going on on the stage than I do, certainly, but you, know, you can use incredibly subtle effects that can be only picked up by the camera that really you can't pick up even seeing someone close up, I mean, this is something that has been was said about a number of actors by people who would watch them on the set and say, like, you would watch them, and it was just like nothing, you know, there was nothing there, nothing was happening, and only when you saw it on the screen would you actually see what was going on. And they had to learn, you know, to gauge what the camera would pick up, and they were actually acting for the camera. But then that becomes something that, if, as you're sitting in the audience, you watch as just being a normal way of behaving. 
you know, the, one, of the, one of the things that's really striking in the history of, of performance is that, you know, at every moment and every phase, the, uh, when a new performance style comes along, people say, oh, it's so real, it's so much more real, and, the, you know, the style that came before starts to look canned and cliche and conventional, you know. When Sarah Bernhardt started performing, we would think of her as being extremely histrionic, but when she started performing, people said, oh, it's so, it's so real, it's so much, unlike, you know, these, these cliche gestures that we've seen before. So this, I mean, I, th I think that's, that's, that's really interesting to look at historically. I mean, the, the development of on-screen acting as something, as a specific technique, uh, really, you can really see that in, in Lee Strasberg's work at the Actors Studio and, and everything that happened around that um, in a, like a mid-century moment. So I think that is when also the idea of, a, or the, the notions of psychology that we associate with the method became sort of encoded with in, into a film, a film uh, acting proper. I, I found myself thinking while reading your piece about how maybe this style fits into a sort of broader, outside of film culture even, a broader sense of minimalism yeah. being sort of de facto connoting good taste. Yeah. Like, yeah. If, you want, if you are a person with money to burn and you're going to decorate your house, you're probably not going to get like a huge... Biedermeier chest of drawers, or I mean I would, but like <laughs> you're gonna get like some very tasteful, you know, Danish modern knockoffs and so on and so forth. It goes to like fonts, sans serif all the way. It exists in, you know, architecture and the sort of uh, rehabilitation of brutalism and the degree to which sort of across the board that's smaller seems to be better or that seems to be the perception and something like you know, a Nicolas Cage, a big Baroque performance is pure ham bone. Right, I mean, that seems, it's, it's kind of odd to think about that as going on within something like The Hunger Games, though, right? Which is yeah. uh, <laughs> hardly a minimalist <laughs> work. Um, you know, so, but, I, but I think, you know, I think there is something there. There's, there's, perhaps we're perceiving a contrast between, this treads in the, in the realm of cliche, but a contrast between, you know, Kardashian culture of crazy makeup and artifice everywhere and, you know, maximalism and what looks like good taste today, which is, you know, whatever's the opposite of that. So I do think... I mean, I mean, I, I mean, you use a phrase at one point in your piece, uh, avoiding big moments, which is something <laughs> I've seen thousands upon thousands of times in film reviews, always like meaning this is a very good, good film. Yeah. <laughs> well, and when like, did they get all the big moments so, out? Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes it's cowardly. Like I think yeah. sometimes from a narrative perspective, right. avoiding the big moment just means you avoided having to deal with what that fallout looks like. Yeah. Or you're yeah. like left with the thing happened, but you don't need to experience yeah. what happens afterwards. And it's not that that's automatically bad, but that Exactly, it's become a shorthand for. We don't tell you what decision they yeah, made. Like, is, isn't that tasteful? Playing two-minute songs without guitar solos isn't an accomplishment <laughs> if you can't solo in the first place. Oh, well, I, I mean, that is a, that that was that was a comment that I got from uh, from a friend about about what I was writing about. Is you know, he said, "Well, is are you just talking about you know inexperienced actors playing it safe?" And you know, I think I think that. You know, we we can argue about that always. One of the one of the challenges of writing about acting is that anyone, we all feel like we can come along and say, you know, I hated that performance. I didn't buy that for a minute. You know, there's a kind of built-in. I don't know, maybe even more so than in film writing in general, which I know suffers from a little bit of that. But you know, we we have this sense that we can always that that performances are there for us. 
you know, and so whatever, however we took them is the way that they are meant to be taken. Um, and I don't, I don't necessarily think there's any way around that, except to say, you know, well, like, if it matters to me that we think Jennifer Lawrence is good, you know, it doesn't necessarily matter to me whether or not she's good in any kind of objective sense, you know, but she seems to, you know, be doing something that people are responding to in mm -hmm. a certain way. So I guess that would be the, the other side of this democratization of, of film chatter is that, you know, we can read these, you know, cultural uh, bellwethers in a different kind of way. Well, and I think that how something is considered good really speaks to Imogen's um, point about how uh, older films, classic films, are considered niche and the effect in which so cultural trends and acting has to do with that. So we're allowed to think older movies are good, but a lot of times we're supposed to think they're good because they're kitschy or the, it's so hysterical, like the racism is hysterical, isn't it? Or what, like viewing with an ironic eye and that that is exclusively how they're meant to be viewed because we don't totally see that reflected in contemporary film, or how some people find theater acting very isolating now, or going to a musical to be like impenetrable because um, it's not what we're used to anymore. I think we want to get some questions for the audience, although I did want to just weave in camera person here. I maybe already discussed this, but it just seems like talk, <laughs> it just, I, I mean, just it seems like discussing about authenticity and performance kind of brings us into this, a film which in a way is made up partly of in, the, in a way like discarded or behind the scenes or unintentional moments. Yeah, so uh, my feature in this, in this issue is on the documentary camera person, though I hate calling it a documentary because it's just so unlike any other film and, and you know, once you start categorizing something, all sorts of ideas come into your head about what it is. But um, it is a, a, you know, it's called from footage that the cinematographer Kirsten Johnson took over the course of 25 films she kind of weaves this very personal tapestry and she doesn't really give context for what you're looking at. She just tells you where they were shot. So you'll go from Bosnia to Queens to Liberia. I mean, it's, it's all over the place. And then you suddenly start to see patterns between things. And uh, but what's really fascinating, I mean, the, everything's fascinating about it. It's, it's an, it is shockingly emotionally overwhelming experience. It just kind of creeps up on you by the end when you see this, you see her life, you see the world, you see everything. But what's most fascinating is that none of the things you're seeing, and I don't know if I've ever seen a movie like this, nothing that you're seeing was shot to be in this movie, in this context. So everything has this kind of purity. Of, there's a complete integrity to everything you're looking at. And the way she weaves them together gives it new meaning. So every time you're looking at an image, you think about where the camera was placed, what the camera person was thinking when she was placing it, what the context is or might be about where she is. And, and yeah, so you can, you can choose to look at each shot as its own shot. You can choose to look at it as part of an overall narrative. And it's pretty extraordinary. It's still playing um, at IFC Center, if people haven't seen it yet. I went to see it again yesterday <laughs> because uh, it's one of those films you just want to experience as many times on the biggest screen before it's gone. So I do recommend that film, too. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like some form of collage art, almost in some way, very highly. But uh, let's go to some questions from the audience. I was wondering, because I think it was Nick, you said something about how a publication will have a sort of single idea or like opinion. And it seems like when you guys are talking that all of your pieces really have a lot to say to each other, either like explicitly or tangentially. So was that going into the... I mean, this issue and all issues, was that something that was intended or did that happen more organically? 
when when I bumped into Shawnee in the outside of the theater and I had not seen her since reading her piece, I was astonished to notice like how close our opening paragraphs were in some respects, which was certainly not planned. Yeah, I mean, I guess when Michael, as Michael and I kind of conceived these different essays, yeah, I, I, part of the idea is that they can talk to each other the, the, on the page and, and now in real life. Um, so, um, yeah, that kind of echo I find productive. It's been nice to discover that hearing them because we, we haven't had this conversation before. No. <laughs> so it's actually really great to see how they can, they can speak to each other. And, um, yeah, these things, kind of, that's what's great about film culture, right? Everything is interwoven. Everything speaks to everything else. And I mean, Imogen's piece is very specifically about watching older films, whatever that means. I mean, it, it, very literally, off, you know, silent films, older films, but nothing she's writing about is disconnected from what anyone else is writing about. I mean, obviously, as we've been saying, the performance piece. And then when you talk about performance, you talk about this amazing new film, Moonlight, and all of these things are being discussed in these weird new forums. So it ties into what Nick wrote about. So yeah, everything's connected. It'd be funny to find something that isn't connected, I guess, is the challenge. We'll try. But, but to answer your question, it's not like they told us what we should write oh, about. No, 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 <laughs> we don't know, know like, what the other yeah. pieces were going to be. No, we keep them separate, otherwise they'll it. organize against us. <laughs> I'm an actor as well, and I was trained in Britain, where they really look down on method acting, and they think it's sort of this vile thing, actually. And uh, as someone who has my own opinion on it, and my opinion is, is that I've never worked with a method actor who has used that to treat somebody nicely on set. What is, where do you fall in on it? Because I think we're reaching our nadir now in terms of these sort of, where it just becomes a distraction almost. Well, you know, the funny thing about method acting, right, is that it, it, the term can mean almost anything today, right? And usually what it's taken to mean when we use it colloquially is kind of like extreme performance, right? <laughs> um, this, you know, this sort of, this, this fantasy of, of never having to get out of character. Jared Leto's the joke. Yeah, exactly. You know, that's, this is sort of the caricature um, of the method, which is really quite funny, actually, because in its original conception, it was supposed to be totally, you know, the opposite of that. And, and you know, there, there's an interesting history History there about why we, wh why that came to be um, the image that we have of method acting. You know, I think that uh, it's become such a catchphrase and a fetish and a buzzword. You know, that you actually sort of need to take account of that. Um, and it's it's sort of controversial history. It's it's history of fame and infamy before you even talk about what's actually going on inside the performances. You know, I think that like a lot of performance, historical performance styles, um, there's a lot there that's really uh, compelling to mine. But but, you know, and I was thinking of this as, as a few of you guys were talking before, you know, in, in Susan Sontag's notes on camp from 1964, she says, maybe one day method acting will look as camp to us uh, as Ruby Keeler's does today. So, you know, and I think she's absolutely right, you know, that, that, that these historical performance forms start to look like camp and become, you know, a, a joke or a, a you know, a, a fantasy, whether or not they were originally useful. All right. Well, thank you everyone so much for this. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold, and edited by Michael Odmark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Film Comet is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comet has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. 
Visit us online at filmcomment.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years. <laughs>